You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McCuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and I'm very pleased to be bringing you this episode recorded live at the LA Podcast Festival 2016 with a very funny man indeed, a very creative man, uh, the creator of uh, several tours, uh, including one with an entire symphony orchestra backing him uh, and also, of course, the uh, writer of the songs, the lyricist and composer uh, for the musicals Matilda and more recently Groundhog Day. And now, as you're about to find out, residing in an office in DreamWorks itself, this is the brilliant Tim Minchin. Give it up for the wonderful Mr. Tim Minchin. Tim, thank you for coming. Sure. We've, uh, Thanks for we've, having me. We've brought a gift. Yeah. You bought me a coffee because you're a nice guy, but I'd already I had bought one. bought a spare coffee. So there's a spare. So we were, gonna, we were thinking we would have a series of wrestling matches. <laughs> it's a round so robin. dividing the audience one against each other until only one person survives. And they can have a cold <laughs> Yeah, a, a by then phenomenally cold <laughs> coffee. The stumps uh, of Would anyone hand. like this? You don't need to pay for it. There we are. Oh, well done. Okay, thank that. you very much. Excellent. Uh, it's a pleasure. You're more than welcome. Tim, I feel, see, I've done some altruism today. I can, I can go do something selfish. And... You were saying, you were saying before backstage that was your. This would be your one act of charity this year. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I'll <laughs> declare that to the tax department. I go, there's three dollars fifty to a random. Perfect. Um, so Is that what Trump's donated, I think. <laughs> so we are, uh, we're here at the LA Podfest, the fifth one. Um, this is my first time uh, appearing here. You live in L.A. now. I live thank, in L.A. Thank you. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, thank you, uh, an enthusiastic American who was sure that everyone else was going to be with them. <laughs> this is very much a British podcast. And uh, as a result, some Brits in the audience were like, hmm, yeah, good for you. Um, that's kind of what we, what we anticipate. So you're, you're living in L.A.? Uh, yeah, live in L.A. Yeah. And you, someone, t- in fact, I tell you who this someone was, is your sister Katie, told me oh, yeah. that you have an office in DreamWorks. Is that the case? Yeah, I live in, yeah, I just go to work in the mornings at uh, 8 o'clock and do work all day and go home at like 6.30. How? It's a, it's a job. It's like a job. <laughs> like? It's almost indistinguishable from a job. Yeah. <laughs> 
and uh, who are you? I just want to sort of visualise you within, because we'll get, I know that some people listening to this, the 0.1% of people won't know who you are in your background. We'll get on to all of that in a moment, but just to stay with the image of you in an office. Yeah. Like, what, how do the other people in the office treat you? Are you in a, do you have a cubicle uh, in DreamWorks? No, I have. Paint the picture for I me. I have a room, and my, DreamWorks is, um, this is DreamWorks animation, not DreamWorks, not the, live action place and it's like a campus it's 20 years old or whatever and it's actually quite beautiful and i have a room and my co-director has a room and there's like there's basically my days are divided into half hours and so i'll try and give you a taste without being long and boring about it but like at, at eight i'll get there and be rewriting a scene or thinking about a lyric adjustment or doing emails or whatever and at about nine o'clock the, the schedule starts and i'll be checking in on a storyboard artist's redrawing of a sequence and then half an hour later I'll go into a big room with a big screen and we'll look at the surface of the feathers on a bird because I'm making an animated film by the way <laughs> a, a singing animal animated and, so, and then there'll be sketches of a new set and then I'll go into another room and someone will have built a 3D digital model of a canyon where this event is going to happen in the movie and then I'll be looking at an animation test and then I'll go back in and launch another storyboard artist on a slightly adjusted version of a sequence in the film and like this it's like the most commercial corporate thing I've ever done and the most creative it's so like every single half hour you've got to turn on a different bit of your brain and make really strong decisions and have sort of enthusiastic discussions about this minutiae of every moment and every pixel of every bloody thing. And this is because you're directing, you're the director of yeah, this? Well, yeah, I have a co-director, but, um, but I came on as a songwriter, it's, so it's a musical Australian rock and roll, Mad Max Cross with Frozen is how I describe it. <laughs> um, it's like I was singing Animal Rock. That just rock. sounds like a puddle. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it's a singing animal rock and roll Australian road movie. You know, it's like, it's got Star Wars bones, but it's, it's, it's you know, funny. And um, I came on as a songwriter. I did a development deal with DreamWorks six years ago, and then I saw this script and went, yeah, I could make that into a musical. There's a script by an Australian called Harry Cripps. And I went, okay, so Song Song, you know, spent weeks doing the job that I do most of my life these days, you know, putting sticky notes up and going, that could be a song. And then, as often is the case with musicals, you realise that no one actually has a clue how to do them because they're awful and hard. Um, well, they're hard and therefore often awful. And eventually, like, why don't you direct it if you're going to be so bossy all the time? And I'm like, <laughs> I said, get me a co-director and you're on. Okay, so your, was your bluff called? In the sense of, like, you went, did you say, I should be directing this? No, they, go, they, they went, you should direct this, and I went, <laughs> <laughs> like that. And then, uh, because it's a big, 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 you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars, and I've never directed a school play, you know. Um, so I laughed. Yeah, I sort of think that's yeah. what I was getting at. Yeah, I, they, I laughed, and they said, because it's, it, it's hard to explain why it's, possible to direct an animated film without having done anything like that before but it's about having clarity of vision and understanding of the tone you want and then there's amazing people all around you doing the stuff you know so is this something that f it seems to me like this is a, a sort of a typically tim minchin it's either a typically tim minchin happy accident whereby everything has happened in the most magical way possible or it's a typically Tim Minchin kind of 
view of a very well thought out and constructed hard voyage with loads and loads of hard work and clarity and direction. Do you know, I sometimes think my sense of myself is that I'm this kind of hardworking, grafty guy who just stumbles on stuff and has a crack and it goes well and then I have a crack at something else. And then somewhere in the back of my brain is this weird, ambitious robot who's actually making it all happen. Because if I look back, I go, I don't know, just, you know, I was writing songs and then they said, do you want to direct it? And then I think, oh, no, I think like four years ago I said, I'm going to make an animated film. And, you know, at some yeah. point I, I sometimes scare myself... Because I think maybe it's more planned than I feel like it is, you know, like that it's more driven by ambition. I don't feel ambitious. I don't have long-term goals and dreams, and I didn't grow up thinking, one of these days I'm going to have a Tony and an Oscar. You know, I didn't, I, I'm not like that. I just like making stuff, and that's how I read myself. Yeah. But that question you just asked about the scary robot who gets what he wants or the guy who's just happy accident, I, I'm not quite sure which one's true. That's interesting because that to me is, um, I'm really glad to hear you say that because there are certain things in, let's go right back to the beginning of your explosion onto the comedy circuit. Okay. So in 2005, oh God, me, I've really done I a lot of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, there's it's plenty of material to research. Yeah, uh, there is, there's loads. So I, I watched the documentary, Rock yeah. and Roll Nerd, which is yeah. about when you took your first ever hour to the Melbourne Comedy Festival yeah. and they invented an award for you. Yeah. Because you didn't, what, what was that? Because it didn't fit into an existing category? No, they just, uh, I, 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 so Melbourne Comedy Festival is the biggest comedy festival in the world, I guess, not counting the Edinburgh Fringe because that's an everything festival, the, the biggest exclusive comedy festival in the world. And it's hard to start, you know, of course. And I, the year before, had done a sort of a few shows in, an, in a venue in South Melbourne that I'd put in the program, but I, I sort of was... My career, the non-scary robot, my career is marked by going, oh, no, I'm not good enough for that, and, like, putting my toe in. And, you know, there's a reason why I didn't get anything going until 30, because I just didn't... I have a lot of self-belief on one part of my brain and a hell of a lot of self-doubt on the other, like most comedians, I suppose. And I was... So I sort of put my toe in the year before, and then 2005, I went, I'm going to do it. And those decisions, that decision, I'm going to do it, included sort of in the months before, like, developing this look. Not sort of, like, I need to develop a look, but kind of stumbling towards a sense of a making it a fucking thing, you know? Like, I'm going to make yes. it a thing. And so I've always liked wearing a bit of makeup and stuff because, you know, just when you come from a theatre background, you're used to putting makeup on. Rock it up a bit, and I'm only going to play a grand piano. Like, I'm not going to play a keyboard. I'm not going to do it if I don't have a grand piano because I kind of had in my head, part of the joke is that I'm doing swear words and inflatable dolls and silliness but I'm properly playing the fuck out of a proper instrument you know like and, and that, that, that to that me sounds like thing. a scary robot decision like well no that was that's a theatre maker that. decision that's that's because I don't know stand up from shit I know theatre I know cabaret I care about a show like I never did five minutes I did two acts and I never did like when I was playing in bands and stuff, I sort of didn't do the gigs. I'd just like hire a hall and write a whole album and do that and sell T-shirts and go, okay, bored now, I'll do something else. I like, I like to make theatre. And so it was not so much Scary Robot as if I'm going to do it, let's do it properly. Okay. And I got a room, but it was at RMIT, like out of the centre hub. So basically I didn't have, I wasn't a comedy festival show the comedy festival produce a lot of the shows themselves and then you can go produce yourself and good luck to you you know um i wasn't a comedy festival show i wasn't 
big in the program. I'd paid my fee and I was flyering myself and Katie was flyering for me and you saw it in the doc. I mean, we mm. were out of town. Rianne, the documentary maker, made a really good... Remember, it's just like a hub and then... Yeah, cr- empty crickets. foyer. Yeah, yeah in a very yeah. cold sort of room, but it was the only room I could find that had a grand piano in it. And so I had, like, this many people on the first night and then 50. There are loads of people here. Yeah, that's right. It's absolutely packed. So I really understand. Oh, it's a really good, a, a good enthusiastic <laughs> crowd of, of connoisseurs, of er, <laughs> early adopters. And, uh, and then I was, but it's a month, you know, like, how many shows do you do at Melbourne? Maybe it's three weeks, is it? Edinburgh's a month, I can't remember. And... Um, the head of the festival and Karen Corrin, the Edinburgh producer, came on the second last night and went, oh, fuck, we m- totally missed this. Mm. And so they wanted to, Karen wanted to take me to Edinburgh and Susan wanted to not have missed, yes. not not be the festival director that didn't spot a thing. That You know, there was a buzz by the end that this was a thing because Scary Robot had made it a thing. And... Um, and so they kind of very generously went, well, we've been thinking about sort of doing a, some sort of sponsor to get an artist to Edinburgh, so let's invent it now between the second last night of the festival and the last night of the festival so we can yeah. give it to Tim so we can... The, 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 the schism, I suppose, of expectation between I'm in a venue out of town, no one's coming to it, I've got no presence here, no one knows who I am, and it absolutely filled up and launched this incredible career and they invented an award for me. That is such a story, isn't it? That's such a, that, that's such a kind of um, a noteworthy story. Like, you could tell that to anyone and go, oh, this incredible thing happened. And anyone would go, oh, I've got to check that out. It's, it's kind of perfect. It's, it's, it's weird in a lot of ways. And, of course, it is a story. And because my... So f- for those many, many, vast majority of people who don't know, in 2005, my dearest friend who lived around the corner you know it's hard as many people know being an artist and going shit no one's paying me and I was playing cover bands on the weekends and doing lots of cool stuff like I'd do a play and I'd do a tour and I'd MD someone's cabaret show and I was always working but sometimes you wake up and go fuck how do I what do I do today to try and have a career you know and so in that period of my life, I would often go around the corner and knock on Rianne's door and we'd have a cup of coffee and just talk about, you know, how frustrating it was really. She's a documentary maker and she said, I just want to make a, a good story, like a human story. And then at some point she went, I bought this new camera. Can I start filming you? Because I reckon this year is going to be interesting. So the weird thing, not about that year, which started with an empty room and ended at the Royal Albert Hall, is that she was... It's just she was totally freaking it the entire that she time. was there. Yeah. I have to say, because she's so close to me, she was filming me in the shower and while my wife had a baby. Kind of moments, and, you know. yeah. I, I did, yeah, filming him in the shower from, in a tasteful kind yeah, of way. Just, There's a little titter over there. A line of buttock. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> very tastefully done. That aspect of it as well, the fa- I have to say, when I, first, when I watched the beginning of that, the documentary, I was thinking there has got to be more going on here than we are being told because not only is this incredible kind of um, career ranks to riches story happening, but they were filming it. Yeah. Like that's another unbelievable yeah. kind of coincidence happy, within it. Yeah. A happy coincidence. And I don't yeah. know how much that's robot and how much it's happy coincidence. I don't, I don't think that's scary, ambitious robot. I think that's a genuine coincidence. But the thing that the story of that documentary does is say... Of course, like all good de- documentaries, it tells the essence of the story and in doing so highlights certain things. Like she kind of really wanted the story to be 
last possible sort of uh, crack at it. You know, yeah. I, and it's true. I was 29. Sarah wanted to have a baby. We both wanted to have a baby. Sarah was working, and we couldn't figure out how we were going to do that. And financially, because um, she was didn't want to go straight back to being a social worker, and and we were living in Melbourne, and I wasn't. I couldn't get an agent, and it's all true. But it omits the fact that I'd spent 10 years. You know that that within that last four years, I had played Hamlet and Armadeus, and I had. Um, written whole musicals and scores for documentaries and MD'd and won awards for musical direction and you know that there's it was fine I was just yeah. poor but I was having a really cool interesting career and the documentary tells the story of this guy sort of playing a thing in the back of a bar yeah. and bang he's a superstar that's right but yeah. the, the, the essence of that story is lovely in a good way but it's weird being us because your memories fade the documentary stays and it's almost like Sarah and I sometimes don't know whether the documentary is more true than our memories. Like, it's quite weird to have your own history locked in and edited to tell a story, and it becomes true. Let's talk about the way in which you locked in and edited elements of your, your story for that show. So just, I want to talk just a little bit about the, the, the hair and the, the costume change. Yeah. Because they're one of the most striking moments in that documentary is seeing you with short, curly hair kind of going, yeah. like, at, yeah. a, at a little Looking keyboard. Looking terrible, yeah. Um, well, it, I wondered whether you had experimented with different looks before kind of settling on the sort of quasi-Tim Burton-ish yeah. kind of shoot, never wearing shoes on stage. When Be I was 21, I had, you know, when I was young, I had all this hair and you know, fancied a uh, set of tales and, you know, it was early 90s, sort of Perth, curious, nerdy, you know. Got, I, I always think always you've got to respect like, a goth in Australia. I uh, know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. And they are hardcore and they're real. Um, and I was... I have always... The Tim Burton is exactly right, that um, I've always l loved that stuff. When I went to Melbourne, because I thought I wanted to be an actor, so I, I did a really good play in Perth just before I got married and moved to Melbourne. And I was like, so I'm going to Melbourne, I'm going to get a record deal, and I'm going to act. Or I'm not, and I'm not. But that was, they were the things. I wasn't so much um, thinking about theatre, I was thinking about my album and acting. And so I cut all my hair off, because in Australia you think, well, if I'm going to act, I need to look like I've got neighbours or whatever, you know. There's not much going on, so you want to look... And uh, and so it was all about that, like trying to middle. And when I, I think probably out of the frustration of, well, somewhere in that Melbourne area, era, I, I realised I wasn't going to be one of those actors who get jobs. I don't look, I'm not handsome and, you know, like I'm not, don't have the right stuff. And I thought, well, I'll be a freak then, you know, which is who I am. And that appeals to me more anyway. But I think I just... It's actually like getting tapes of some of those early shows. I started taping those early shows, early cabaret shows. My first one, which is not on the record, was called Naval Cerebral Melodies with Umbilical Chords and was actually, was actually 2003 at the Melbourne Fringe Festival and it was the first time I did a bass player and a drummer before I went solo, before I went grand pianos. It just it went well, but it was... Um, and I started taping them and watching them and going... My problems include I go very pink because I play very hard and I get very sweaty and pink. And so the makeup came from like, I just look awful. I've got to figure out how to look less awful so that 
it's I don't know, you know, like look more like it's this theatrical thing. Like, yeah. it should be a fucking show, and you should look like Mozart whilst saying "fuck the motherfucking pope." That's the that's <laughs> that's where my comedy comes from. Is a clash between content and form, right? So. I say that now in hindsight, I understand the clash between content and form and the clash between high status and low status and all that stuff that your listeners have heard various versions of. But I don't think back then I knew it like that. I just knew it sort of slightly instinctively that I needed to make the thing a piece of entertainment. And actually when I went to Edinburgh, that was the thing that made me stand out is actually I didn't realise that... Um, you know, in, in, in England in that era and for 10 years prior, the more you look like fucking, I'm, I'm standing up people, you know, like <laughs> in a t-shirt and jeans and like, like wandering around looking shit. That's, that was, it. that was alternative comedy yeah. taking all the game out. And I came in with game up the wazoo, lighting effects and smoke machines and a fan and a, fa a wind machine and a grand piano, white grand piano and like music cues and blackouts. And I thought there'll be a million people doing this. And they, they weren't, you know. So this is Tim. I'm having a whale of a time, as you can hear. A real privilege to meet Tim. Um, I am such a huge fan of his work. I'm sure you can hear that. Uh, there are some people... I mean, no one comes on this show unless I think they're fantastic. But in Tim's case, he's really someone who I have... I've been aware of for ten years. I've had his work on my... On my phone. Isn't that weird? That's how we think about it these days. I've had his stuff on my phone. Um, but uh, someone with whose work I feel a very personal connection. And uh, we'll talk about that a little more uh, in the episode I want to uh, oh so so here's the thing I said on the um, uh, the comedians comedian Facebook group which you can join if you'd like to uh, uh, ask questions for future guests of mine or otherwise correspond with me um, and uh, I said on there uh, that Tim was going to be my guest and someone as everyone like it's almost become a running joke now that people like to point out other podcasts on which my guests have appeared I don't know if people know that they're doing I don't know if they're doing it to wind me up but a lot of people said oh Tim's just appeared on Richard Herring's uh, Rahelisper podcast and um uh, obviously, I'm, you know, I was, <laughs> I thought I'd scored this big get of a guest who is now out in LA and what have you. I didn't realise he was back in the UK quite as often as he is. And uh, I certainly didn't realise that he had uh, just guested on uh, Herring's podcast. However, I get up in, I get all worried about stuff like this. My partner will tell you, I go like, oh God, I was supposed to be, oh no, it's a big problem. It's not a problem at all. Well, Richard and I are very different. We do very different things. I listen to, I don't normally listen to my guest appearance on other shows before doing them kind of as research but even that I'm going to get over if you haven't already listened to uh, the Rahelistaba podcast with Tim Minchin and he was his first guest ever however many years ago that was I really recommend you check it out I'm sort of I imagine that in the Venn diagrams of our audience uh, our res respective audiences Richard's is the sort of hundreds and hundreds of thousands and then within that entirely within that uh, is the small circle that represents you guys um, so if that I'm, I'm not sure that's the case and and uh, I'm very happy for that to be the case. What I mean is, I don't know if there's any point in me directing you to his podcast, because you probably already know about it, but if you haven't already checked it out, then you should. And I'm, I'm happy to advertise it, because I recognise that what we do is sufficiently different and wonderful in different ways. So, uh, so that's all that. Um, I would like to thank Tim for coming on the show. I'll mention that again at the end. Uh, but I, I mean, this is, this is a, a real blinder. At one point, Tim, later on in this episode, takes me to task on whether I actually care about how he writes 
hates the, uh, the songs for Matilda. And fuck me, I do. I do care. And they're pinging around my head at two o'clock in the morning. So I would recommend uh, downloading that uh, car soundtrack album with extreme caution. It's brilliant, but God... Good God, it's catchy. So, uh, that's all for now. Um, I, obviously, I was at LA Podfest, and I might as well tell you this now. By the time this goes live, you'll be able to hear me on both Jimmy Pardo's Never Not Funny podcast uh, and also Jackie Cation's Dork Forest podcast, two very different shows. If you've not heard those before, while I'm in a recommending mood, um, you should absolutely check them out. Jimmy Pardo is one of the longest-running podcasts, I think, that exists. It's been going 10 years or so. Uh, and I, in 1901 episodes, uh, I'm very very proud, very pleased to uh, to be his first ever English guest. The only other Brit I think he's had, uh, he said at the time, was Michael Sheen. Who's he? I know who he is. And I'm uh, very proud to be in, in that kind of company, but he's Welsh, so I escaped that on a technicality. Uh, first Englishman ever, and uh, Matthew Crosby from Pappy's got in touch to say that uh, it had completely ruined his day, because he's such a fan of that show. <laughs> so uh, do check that out. It's really, really funny. It's just a bunch of people in a room talking, and no particular uh, agenda on that show, but uh, it's very, very funny indeed. So check that one out, and you can hear me on it. That's called Never Not Funny. It's on the Earwolf Network. Uh, and also, if you're not familiar with Jackie Cation's show, why not? She's someone I had on, the, on this podcast last year. She has a brilliant podcast called The Dork Forest, which which is a space within which people can absolutely dork out or geek out, or however you want to put it, uh, about the uh, things that they're obsessed with. I talk a lot about games, game mechanics, board games, uh, kind of live, ac- I say live action games, you know, things like Werewolf, if you know what that is. Oh, you really get, we get our teeth into Werewolf. And, uh, uh, and also, I explain some of the games that uh, me and my partner have invented. So if, if you like me talking rubbish, then you are almost certainly going to <laughs> very much enjoy that. So look out for Never Not Funny and The Dork Forest. They should be, be, uh, both be out now. And of course, if you would like to correspond with me further, you can email me info at comedianscomedian.com. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, you can do that too, all at comedianscomedian.com. Thank you so many of you who've signed up for recurring donations. I'm very appreciative. Uh, and also anyone that's made a one-off donation, you can do that of £10, £20, £50, or you can pay me a pound an episode uh, or whatever else uh, you find appropriate for a show that is hopefully continuing to inveigle its way into your life, your conscience, uh, your, not your conscience, your conscience your creativity and if you find yourself around and about doing things or taking on advice or tips from this show uh, and uh, and they make a bit of a difference then why not uh, remunerate me why not uh, show me that with a little bit of a donation that's uh, very kind of you so thanks to everyone that has I'm not going to read any of those out today but I've had some lovely uh, uh, lovely messages recently and you can follow me on Twitter at ComComPod or at Stu Goldsmith as well which I don't often mention it's my own Twitter account I'm <laughs> I solemnly swear this is like an onion headline i solemnly swear i'm going to start using twitter more am i i'm probably not but you might as well because occasionally there's little uh, treats and things on that and i've got a bit of news for you as well uh, on the subject of following me and hearing updates and things uh, on the 21st of october a scant three weeks from now uh, we are going to be announcing and i use the royal we there so uh, i'm only, <laughs> only ever talking about me uh, and also in this case perhaps daryl who's editing this show hello daryl um but uh, we slash I, I'm going to be announcing my uh, my new tour 
the tour of the show that just went to Edinburgh uh, and uh, received, uh, I'm very pleased to say, some very nice reviews, none of which I've read. Yes, I win. Um, but uh, <laughs> I received some great reviews and more importantly, had lots and lots of happy, laughing people uh, being turned away in their droves because there was no uh, <laughs> there was no room for them. Oh, how they laughed, how we laughed as they queued for half an hour and then left. So if that was you, I'm terribly sorry. I hope most of you came back to, uh, to try and see the show. Uh, but it's called Compared to What? And I'm going to be taking it all around the country. I'm, I'm going far more up uh, further into the northwest and the north in the northeast than I did last time because I can no longer rely on the excuse of just having had a baby. Instead, I will be trying to uh, eke, a, eke a living on the excuse of, holy Jesus Christ, I want to get back to my baby. So uh, do please make it worth my while, <laughs> all this time spent away from Boutros. Um, if you are in any of the areas that I will announce on the 21st of October, please hightail it to the show. So uh, this is, I can't, I'm not going to give you any details now, it's all not, not all kind of signed and sealed at the moment, but I, I'm really looking forward to that. The last tour was so much fun, and uh, it's just really invigorated my whole view of what I'm doing. You know, it, it's, it, it's having a solid kind of core of touring in the year really changes my life, and I'm so thrilled. I very, feel very privileged to be able to do it. Um, so listen out for those on the 21st of October. Now, let's get back to Mr. Tim Minch. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think I've said before on this show, what I've tried to do as a comic is basically, I think what... I, I think what one has to do as a comic, and I have tried to follow this myself, is take away all the obstacles between the audience and the real you, and then just cross your fingers and hope it's zeitgeist. That's and that exactly is what you're right. doing is the complete opposite of that, and you're a million times more successful than me. So well, that I, fucks I, my theory. I actually, but, no, no, because, because I'm not. I'm just giving them a different way. I'm giving them a different journey at coming into my world because in that very first show i encored with not perfect which is a song that makes people cry and there's no joke it's got quirky lyrics but i always have done that i do this basically i i go razzle dazzle razzle dazzle often my openings are big and ridiculous and it's like it asks the question at the beginning of my shows I ask a question i've never thought about this i'm just talking now they ask a question like what the fuck what the fuck and then slowly especially because my stand-up so pontificating is so um, um, full of opinions and stuff, you start going, oh, he's that. And then you're letting people in, letting people in, and eventually you go, oh, by the way, um, it, it, it's about when there is a version of comedy that does the same thing, but it holds people out before you let them in. And yeah. it's very gratifying, I think, maybe. 
because if you let them in in the first minute, then you've got to do other things to keep the ball in the air. Yes. Maybe, maybe. Yes, because the when you, I, I remember watching back some of your videos of that early show. And seeing that it changed your whole body, the fact you weren't wearing shoes and had big hair and long fingers, you kind of became like Strulpeter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you kind yeah, of became yeah. this sort of folktale archetype. And it, and it affects, certainly at the beginning of the shows, maybe more, it affects the way you hold your body and the way you kind of pounce and snarl and all the rest of it. Yeah, and, it, and my stand-up, my character was, that my, my, my stand-up was like, you know, okay, so you got the, it was a bit little, he was a little aspie almost, you know, like he was a little unusual and i i only see that in hindsight i didn't i guess it's fear i i didn't see myself as a stand-up and my stand-up in those shows was not great and my stand-ups got better but and as my stand-ups got better and i've got more confident i've got more like me so i was protecting myself by not being me and i didn't realize that at the time but i guess i did know that my guy was a curious guy because the curious guy can go i, I don't know i, I don't know boosh yeah. Something really harsh and like truth bomby, <laughs> um, but but of course it's innocent. I didn't, you know, like it allows you to be strident without yes. seeming you, you kind of, burns. You play a naivety. Yes, that's right. And there's a moment in the documentary when you are backstage talking oh, yeah. to Karen Corrin, and you say something absolutely fascinating. I was probably like, spit my drink in out. my underpants. Uh, I, I think you're in your underpants backstage, yeah. and yeah. there is this. And I thought it was really brave of the documentary to leave in the wranglings, the personal and uh, professional wranglings of should I go with this agent? This person has sort of made an advance to someone else without asking me. This kind of business. Um, but she says to you. I think you, I don't know if you, you might remember the words exactly, but you said something like, what, is it, what does it mean to me? And she says, well, you know what it means to you. You know, you know who's got the power. Don't You're being be naive. naive. Mm. And you said, yes, I, I pretend that I'm naive. That's no, how I, get I my said naivety is my best, is my greatest asset, I think. I, I, said I think you said that, like that. You said that's yeah. how I get information that's how I get from information. people. And it's actually more than that. And, and because my naivety about comedy and management and stuff was all very real. Um, but my solution to being ignorant and naive was not to read up on it and get, get on top of it and make big decisions. It was like, okay, I'm going to, I'll let you guys educate me and see who hang, who hangs themselves with, with duplicity, you know, like, yes. I, I'm, cause I'm, I'm ignorant, but not stupid. And I was very, very cynical, much more cynical than I needed to be. And when I first came to America, I was incredibly skeptical of every, because when you've been playing cover bands and being rejected by every agent in Australia and never knocking record deals and just knock back, knock back, knock back, you actually go, well, if someone comes to you and says, I want to make you a star, you go, well, you don't. I'm, I'm not going to be that, obviously, because there's a reason why I've got all these knockbacks. I want you to say, I could help you scrape a living, and then I'll believe you. And actually, in America, they go, we're going to make you a star. What do you want to do? You want to be on the television and all this? And I'm like, I'm not going to get on fucking television. Just tell me how you're going to help me feed my fucking family you know but that it's bullshit until it's not and then suddenly i'm on a tv show in america and i'm like oh they weren't lying it was just it's but it sounded so much like bullshit because of how i'd never got anything like that i'd not i'd not even got someone saying we can represent you so and someone's saying we can make you a star you're like you're just full of shit you're lying to me i i, th I think something i think something that um 
a lot of comedians go through is, and, and I've sort of seen the other side of this as well, when you are represented by someone and you're in an office and you overhear managers talking to each other, yeah. you kind of, like, they, the way I've heard managers sometimes talk, or agents talk about uh, the talent, talk about the acts, is like, well, what are they, what are they saying about that? What are they trying to give, what impression are they trying to give? You know, and, and I, as an actor, wanted to stand up for them and go, they don't fucking know. No, they don't fine. know what they're saying. You're, you, the manager, are looking at this from the perspective of having been in showbiz for 20 years. You think you're years. being manipulated. Like, that, that's the thing. So, yeah, they, they, they think everything's a manipulation. They don't realize how... They don't realize that we don't know. We don't, we don't know, know how it works. Yeah, that's right. I don't think it hurt me to be really cynical about people's intentions. But in hindsight, I didn't need to be quite so... I'm still pretty cynical, you know. I'm still pretty wary. But but there, are, that that was I had a chip on my shoulder because of too many rejections, you know, and so the, um, so I allowed myself to just say, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm doing, but you you convince me and I'll I'll figure it out as I go along. But it's also been very good for my comedy, being ignorant about comedy, not having ever really watched stand up before I became a comedian, or really been a fan was very helpful for me. So I'm just trying to place the, the person you were when you came out of school. You were privately educated, as was I, and I'm sure that a so lot sorry. of my... Yes, yeah, yeah. thanks, man. Um, <laughs> a lot of my career is an attempt to stick two fingers up at versions of people who don't exist anymore. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Some and phys ed teacher. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 that'll show those guys that don't even remember me. <laughs> yeah, 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 ab yeah, absolutely, there's a lot who of that. Who didn't actually reject you, yeah, you just who felt rejected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who facilitated me in yeah. coming up with the idea that they rejected me. Yeah, yeah. totally, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awful. Um, but, um, but in that position, were you kind of going towards music and wanting, like pre-rock pre, uh, and roll nerd, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff, were you going towards... Uh, an idea of being a musician, being a rock star as a means of rebelling? No, I was doing a degree at university in theatre and English. I guess I thought I'd be a teacher or potentially an academic. Not that I was hugely academic at school, but yeah, I was within, like, my Leavers English grade was way above anything else, so I thought that's my thing, which in, in it turned out to be the case, probably. Um, but uh, I didn't... I, and, and while I was at uni... When I was 17, I wrote um, a score for a musical version of Love's Labour's Lost. And when I was 18, I wrote a score for music, for rewrote Kurt Vile's score for Mother Courage. And I wrote like six or eight theatre scores in that three years, all for free, obviously. And so I was, it was composition, really. And then I would be the guy in the improv, I had improv friends, and I'd be the guy playing the piano and going, oh, fuck, I wish I could be one of the people on stage but I'm not as clever as them. And then all my friends auditioned for acting school, and I went, oh, I wish I was talented enough to do that. But I, it just, I, just, I come from a background where they're incredibly supportive, but they didn't necessarily let me think that that was really possible for... It, it wasn't their fault. Maybe I've parents invented... Yeah, parents, parents. But I probably invented that. I just... I guess I had one muso family. My uncle's a musician, and he, he has had a lot of troubles and um, addiction and... And I think that was what a muso was to me. And I, and in my family, you do not, you know, in my family, if you got a C plus, I'd be like, or a B, I'd be like, you probably could have got an A there. You haven't worked very hard. You know, it's like just good, strict parenting, good, um, you know, good parenting. I think I, I, I do believe that. I was a lazy student and my parents didn't let me be. And that's the best thing that, you know, that's the a huge part of why I'm, I work hard or something. I was taught to work hard. But um, 
Just, just to, just to mm-hmm. hover on that for a second, just in the prism of maybe there's a, a, a robot inside yeah, that gets yeah, shit yeah. done. Yeah, Do you think yeah. that he was kind of sm- forged? Yeah, well, I think in, I have my dad's neurology. So my dad's a surgeon and his dad's a surgeon and they're very, all my material reflects a very literal materialistic, um, in this philosophical, not the economic sense. Um, Sort of brain. <laughs> Someone just yawned. Oh, all right, mate. <laughs> that, was a, that was a proper yawn. Um, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, um, uh, just we, the we word like, philosophy. We... Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I had a sort of quite strict, you know, my, you know, the upbringing. So someone, there's, it's definitely my siblings and I have been brought up to think you don't piss around and you do your best at whatever you do that's all and um as part of all that much more sort of conservative strict um conservative uh, philosophically not politically um uh just i didn't believe i could be one of those carnies didn't think i could be a runaway of the circus so i was doing an arts degree and writing all this music and because i'm self-taught or at least i largely self-taught couldn't read or write music couldn't read the dots i thought i'll hit a wall here I'll definitely hit a wall, and at that point, that'll be all right, you know. Maybe if I'm a teacher, I'll help write the songs for the school musical, like, you know. And then in the back of my head, I'm like, I could play in a piano bar, I swear I could get paid to... So I was washing dishes and working behind the bar and all that stuff that you do in your late teens, um, working at hardware. And, uh, and I thought, imagine if I could make money out of just sit, play piano and people put bread in my jar. And... Uh, so that, good, that, I was just thinking we mentioned street performing earlier on. Yeah. Take a drink. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's a good job you didn't discover street performing because it would have ruined you. Yeah, that, right. That yeah. thing of uh, walking into a shop, it's effectively, my friend Conrad said, it's like begging. walking into a, a shop and not begging. begging <laughs> it's like walking into a shop, doing a handstand and being given a tin yeah, of Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 It's carny. Anyway, after I did my arts degree and Sarah dropped me, so I met Sarah and first year and we went and then and I said and I was pretty heartbroken and I didn't know I was going to go on and do honours and I just said to my mum and dad can I have a year to try and be an artist and then if it doesn't work out I'll stop just that's the height of fucking ignorance you know <laughs> I'll smash this in a year yeah, and yeah. prove well, you yeah well yeah. I don't know what I thought that meant but I just did a lot of plays so I acted wrote music you know sometimes both um and made plays and spent my life rigging lights and building sets and did that and wash dishes and serve coffee. And uh, so somewhere there I thought, I wonder what it would be. And, uh, and then I went to music school to try and learn to read music. <laughs> that didn't work, but I liked it. it was, uh... so, so does that mean the Tim Minchin that we know from Rock and Roll Nerd, which is one of your most well-known songs, it was kind of the, the anthem of, your, of that first show that mm-hmm. blew up, um, and in that, you, you know, the, the, the joke, the comic premise of the story is you're, yeah. you're singing about someone who wanted to be a rock and roll guy but played piano instead of guitar, and then the, the payoff is that we're, we learn that it's you. Yeah. And so you're able to sort of point these barbs yeah. at yourselves about yeah. how he doesn't really mean it, he doesn't rock hard enough, and he, he wants He doesn't to. have any damage. Yeah, he doesn't that, have the, any the, damage. The, the, the conceit of that song is you need to have damage to be an artist, and that's exactly what I thought, I think. And so I didn't really... I, I, that, that's why I was not a good pop songwriter, why I didn't get a record deal, because my stuff was so... I didn't, if, when I had a broken heart, I didn't... Again, this is about my upbringing, you know, and not unusual. My parents are fantastic, but it's not very... We love you and we're proud of you. I mean, it's not at all that, you know. And so I, I just didn't think my feelings 
you know, I didn't think my unpacking of my heart with words was legitimate. And I didn't think, I, I felt like a middle-class person trying to pretend to be someone with real feelings. And so I wrote about that. I wrote about what it is to be a middle-class person wanting to be a person that has real feelings. And was that, did that then become any kind of a, a sort of a cage because it, it became a stamp of this is the guy who's being the middle-class person who's... Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's, it's sort of, it feels like a card you can only play once yeah. before people are like, well, then actually give us some real feelings. Yeah, that's right. And I think... I don't think it trapped me. I think I, it was part of it. I think some, it annoyed some people. And, um, you know, the people who don't like my stuff probably like, just because you're making a joke about being privileged doesn't mean it's not annoying. So, uh, <laughs> but actually I was making, <laughs> I was actually writing songs about, about um, God and sex. And, and God and sex is something that someone like me can talk about because they're conceptual. So all my comedy is, very little of my comedy is about, um, my life, it's about ideas, and, and that's what ended up defining me, I think. I did wonder the extent to which, when, when you listen back to Rock and Roll Nerd and you hear someone going, I wish I had something to complain about, yeah. that then you become known as someone who has got a lot of uh, anger towards religion. Yeah. And I did wonder how much of that anger towards religion is because you personally feel a burning anger about it and how much of it is that feeling that burning anger enables you to have something to write your songs about and to rock out about it's that one is it yeah because i do feel angry not at religion at, at bigotry supported by religion I, I feel annoyed at the fact that most of our world is built on a complete load of bullshit that we feed into kids when they're young it's just annoying i'd rather people were educated with stuff that's real that but my my anger at at homophobia, most of my stuff is about homophobia and kitty fiddling and, you know, it's the th stuff that the big strong walls of religion hides, you know. And it, and so, so I feel anger, but I don't, I didn't become a comedian so I could express myself. I became a comedian and, and what I was thinking about at the time was this stuff. And then I kind of went deeper down the rabbit hole. So about the time in my mid-twenties when I was really getting into reading about science and, and I'd done a bit of philosophy oh, um, <laughs> um, and, the, and, and logic and I was very interested in logic and critical thinking and, and, and I was starting to realise my dad was right that you know he would always bore me when I was like a teenager and I'd go, what about this? And he'd go, well, well you'd, you'd want to do a double-blind experiment about that, wouldn't you, and get the data? And I'd be like, ah! <laughs> and, and now it's like what I am. <laughs> I'm like that guy times five. I'm like, well, oh, we could look at the data, couldn't we? <laughs> um, we need to a meta-analysis, and then we can make a decision on that. Until then, you're just bullshit. It's an anecdote, right? Um, and so I started just going down that rabbit hole and reading a lot about critical thinking and why we believe the things we believe and stuff. And meanwhile, my career's taking off, and it sort of feels like a coincidence to me but you could unpack anyone's career with with a set of tweezers like that and go it, it's absurd for me to try and say i didn't feel what i wrote i mean i think as my career has gone on and i felt i have a right to be an artist which took such a long time to say you're allowed to be an artist man you don't have to keep mocking yourself you can i don't know if you've heard a song called beauty that i wrote for my orchestra show but that's the step on 
that I wrote five years after. Can you? I won't Rock know it from the name Beauty, but which it song goes, is it? goes, Beauty is a harlan. She will dance with any bastard. She's undiscerning in her choice of partners. I could have her, of course, if I wish, but I object to her promiscuousness. Beauty just doesn't suit me. And it's all, it's the next step from Rock and Roll Nerd, which is saying, am I allowed to now that I'm a comedian and known for satire, for using music as a barb, am I allowed to also claim to be able to make beauty, to make art? And that song is saying, I don't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make beautiful stuff anyway. Like it's got, it's got, it's got um, the line, you pay to see satire and rage. I swear I won't let beauty set foot on this stage. It's, um, it's saying. It's ironically, it's a very pretty song. I, I actually, I, I'm not too falsely modest. It's, my, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever written. I, I love it. It's a beautiful tune. And it's, it's ironically saying, I'm not going to do anything beautiful here because I know you don't want that from me. You want me to be a satirist. And I open shows with it now because it just... <laughs> makes people's heads explode. But, um, and, and because presumably you're, you're reveling in the fact that now you do give yourself permission as an artist to do yeah. whatever the fuck you want to do. Yeah, and so this becomes nauseating, except that the point, it's, it's connected to the fact that I've kind of moved on from comedy. So uh, writing Matilda allowed me to take myself more seriously as a songwriter, and, 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 and it's weird. I'm 40, I've been writing songs for 27 years, and I've never made a record. I mean, that's how much I didn't. I don't think I'm allowed to be a musician. I mean, it's bizarre. And yet, that's my little, like, humble, sad, little Perth boy brain. And my other brain's like, fuck you, man. I'm, you know, like, like, I'm a proper fucking songwriter. And if you don't understand that, you can fuck off. You know, like, <laughs> I've got that as well, which comes from the same place, obviously, you know. But now I don't feel worried about it. I just need to find time to get into the studio. And I will make an album. I'll go back to pre-rock and roll nerd and make the fucking record I always wanted. A non-comedy one? Yeah, maybe, or just, you know, I don't know how to write. My lyrics are always a bit sideways, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to that write. That was the sound of an audience <laughs> going, go on, Tim, you've got our permission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is weird, and, and none of it's, uh, there's no sob story, but it has been my story of coming very late to going, oh, no, you're, like, you're not a wannabe musician or what you're like you're just fucking musician just be one you know like be a lyricist and you know comedy was comedy was kind of my period of of going because i'm not a real artist i mean i was just like sticking everything i was good at together basically and going come on give us a fucking break and mm. and it opened all the doors you know just staying with that the idea of a, that specific song of this the song beauty someone a listener called rich stokes said I had a couple of list of questions that I invited, and he said, have you ever written a comedy song and then thought, that was really beautiful, I wish I'd used the music for something more, he says, more straightforward, which I think is a nicely open way of putting it. Yeah. I don't think so, because I think what I'm really interested in now, and always have been but didn't really identify it, is actually the edge, you know. I'm interested in writing lyrics that are evocative and quirky and stuff, so I don't actually, my ambition is not to write pop songs where the lyrics are like charmingly ambiguous so you can bring to your, the art what you feel it means, you know. <laughs> my, my lyrics, are, writing didactic, didactic lyrics is why I ended up being a comedian, why I wasn't a pop musician. I can't help but stuff shitloads of lyrics into stuff and like, and try and, try and be 
they're didactic. They're, they're, they explain themselves and explain and eat themselves, and there's internal rhymes up the wazoo, and it's, it's more theatre. It comes from a theatrical sort of style of songwriting, which is why it's, that's where I've ended up. But, um, but I think the songs that I would say are in that category where they make people have the feels, like Not Perfect and White Wine in the Sun, basically my encores, Beauty, um, you grow on me like a tumor, which is a weird one that starts very silly, but gets quite like, oh fuck, mm -hmm. it it is like love is a disease. My God, um, 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 drowned. You know these songs all start with lines where people laugh, and I never regret that because I love the journey in. They're like, oh, it's all right, it's quite funny, and oh, you know, I yeah. love, I love that dip in. It's, it excites me. When you write, you, you referred to "Not Perfect" earlier on as a, that's a song that makes people cry. Yeah, it absolutely does me. I've listened, you know, since oh, I, I kind of rediscovered it recently, listening back in, in preparation for oh, this, thanks. and that's become like, oh, I've, I've now got that on my phone, and I've yeah. you know, oh, had a good. little moment with my little baby son yeah, listening well, to that, and whilst walking you're... around and looking at trees and going, <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what does it feel like to know that you've created? Like one of the things, one of the things I love about comedy, about my own practice in comedy, is writing a joke and going, ah, oh, a new thing exists in the world, a yeah. new combination of ideas that makes people laugh against their will. Yeah. You know, which is, yeah, that's, you know, that's the mark of quality, you know. Um, <laughs> for me, that's, um, like, that, that is a real joy for me to have gone, boom, that works, and it works because I made it. Yeah. When you've created a, a song that can make people cry, that, like, the simplicity, and the beauty of the premise of the song, Not Perfect, that kind of railing against perfectionism and going, I should just be happy with what I've got. Yeah. What does that feel like to, to have made that happen in the world, to know that there's a thing now? Well, I think it's good. I think you wish it was better. I mean, I can't listen to it because I hate my voice. You know, like, so I, I'll always have a complicated relationship with that stuff. Do you, there, can there I just stop you for a second? Yeah. Do you hate your voice, or does the scary robot hate your voice? Who is oh, that? Who says you hate your both voice? Both of them. They get together and have hate parties. <laughs> what? You know, seriously, let me just hold you on that for a second. What, when you say you hate your voice, that's a very glib thing to say about like a, something that's a massive part of your work and your practice. Yeah, I, I, I'm on a journey. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the, yeah, I did. A, I did. Um, I had this long-term dream of playing Judas in Jesus Christ as star, <laughs> which for those of you who know musicals is this insane rock high sing. And I saw, oh, I'm going to do that one day. And then I was like, you can't do it. It's too high and you won't be able to do it. And then I got to do it and it fucking changed my life because that, because I had this relationship with my voice that it was, it gets tired really. Oh, you can hear it this morning just from going to a party for two hours last night. It's vulnerable and I need to protect it. And, and it was doing me. With that first Edinburgh, I mean, I was just mm -hmm. like popping propolis lozenges, some bullshit. Um, rotted my teeth in the end. Some the, some quack told me bees honey was special or something. And um, uh, and I, but I was had a really difficult relationship. And then I did Judas and sang this thing every night. And I'd get tired and get up and do it again. And I went, fuck, it's it's solid, man. It's going to be fine. So that was good. I had a real. That was really good for for my hatred of my voice. But but now I just hate it because of how it sounds. Not not because it's vulnerable. But, what, what but everyone hates their sounds. own voice. That's not interesting. It's just. Does, does it remind you of a version of you or something? No, what no. It? It's just just. It's just my voice. I mean, everyone hates their own voice. Do you listen to yourself back and go, "Oh, that's a lovely sonorous voice." 
And I, well, you have a lovely voice, but I've got. No, quite... I mean, no. In all honesty, no. I, I hate my own voice, but that doesn't help the no. line of questioning. <laughs> yeah, but, but everyone does. To, I'm everyone I'm does. Rude. It's like when you listen to yourself on an answering machine, you want to kill yourself. But um, every, <laughs> everyone hates their own voice, but my voice, I also have peace with because. I have learnt through writing musicals and getting other people to sing my songs that what I do very, very easily, other people cannot frickin' do. And it's probably a physical thing. The reason I am not so good at singing like these is because I have a not huge cavity, you know. Um, <laughs> Pass but, but what I have and something about the way I use my voice I can say things very quickly and they're very very clear and a lot of people can't do it it's about s something sitting in the front of your voice and so I, I've built a career on lots of lyrics in short spaces of time and people can always understand what I'm saying and I thought everyone could do that if they wanted to and they, some people just can't like, their mouths are like this big sort of lovely thing and it's all sonorous but if they try to talk properly it's like quickly it becomes a mess you know? I can sort of visualise you writing a song for someone for a musical and going oh you think you've got a good voice have you let's see if yeah. you can fucking cope with this yeah that's right exactly <laughs> it's, like, it's like me going yeah well you might be a good singer but you, you know in, in Matilda they go in telly he goes um the, that line, I don't know if anyone knows Matilda, watching slightly famous people talking to really famous people, like, um, which people really, really struggle with. So the whole song's never been done at the tempo I want it knowing to. That, because... Knowing that I was going to interview I really laughed at that line. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Watching yeah. slightly famous people talking to really famous people. Yeah, it's a good line. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, uh, why are we talking about my fucking voice? Oh, we're talking about not so, perfect. So the things that I make that I'm proud of, uh, I, I do... I look back at my comedy now that I haven't written anything for years and years. Like, I, I basically did five years. And I, I'm quite proud of it. M much more. Distance is fantastic. You can, I can actually watch a show of mine now and not, not I hate myself. Um, like, you know, it's hard to watch your own shows. You're just like, oh, dude. Um, and I quite like some of the stuff. The stuff that lives, like the Christmas song, White Wine in the Sun, which Australians pull out every year and listen to is... I'm really proud of that because it's also, you, you know, you are going through that experience now of having your first kid and having that sense of profundity and wanting to share it with the people you love and all that. It's a sort of marker of that and it's a, it's nice. But um, I think why I've ended up so enthusiastically embracing my post-comedy theatre-making career is because that is the ultimate version of what you're talking about. You know, Groundhog Day, which is just closed in London, is a thing of great beauty and it's not because my stuff's only an element of it and i'm proud of the way it supports the story but the having contributed to something that all these great artists and performers contributed to and know and knowing that it will live and people will perform it hopefully for years is like profoundly satisfying in in, in that way that you're talking about about something existing that you made and it's kind of even better if it's not something you made by yourself. It's something that you made with people and struggled to make and chipped away at and fought over. And, you know, it's like the harder it is to make, the more pieces it required, the more exactness and, and delving and chipping and crafting, the more it's deeply, deeply satisfying. If you're a person who can be deeply satisfied. <laughs> Go as opposed on. to as a, as opposed to like okay what am I going to do next like which is you know my, which is more my like nature you. yeah before we move on to Matilda and the musical theatre stuff just I wanted to ask one more question about your mm. your stand up performances based on what you just said then about watching it back and and hating it 
Now, obviously, there's the issues with your voice, and no one likes to watch themselves back. But in yeah. terms of, and this is something I ask lots of people that yeah. sort of following this this particular line, in terms of the content of the show or the things that you're talking about or the way you're talking about them. Just talk to us about that experience of watching yourself back and going, oh, that was either that was a bad decision that you made at a particular time. What sorts of things stick out as clangers? Um, I actually don't feel particularly um, embarrassed by my material. There's nothing I've changed my opinion on, um, really. Uh, by the time I started taping things, I had already learnt my lessons about uh, the lines I'm happy to cross and the type of offence I want to give. I had already made my early mistakes that a lot of comedians make for a lot longer. I, it's not in my nature to be fine with people hating me. So I, well, so like I was the piano guy who was trying to be edgy, right? And and a lot of people try to be edgy. And, and to get attention, often you have to be quite edgy to get people to watch. You need to be bringing something new to the table so the fact that I played piano quite well but was willing to sort of say edgy things or to make people go oh my god you can't say that oh and and I could get away with heaps because of the diddly yeah. d <laughs> um and that that's the point that's the clash between content and form it's like oh someone's singing a song to us and it rhymes and oh my god did he really just say that well it seems all right because it's Rhymes. Um, he's, he's clearly put a lot of work into playing yeah, the piano. Right, a little bit of He's effort. not just some random yeah. shouting lunatic. You yeah. know that Tony Law bit? I just want to know someone put some effort into it. Yeah, yeah. As long as I know they put some effort into it, I'll take a print. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love Tony Law. He's my favourite. Um, have you seen his recent stuff? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. He's been on. He's been on the show, and oh, he's coming back on it. Fine. Yeah. Yeah, um, wonderful. Yeah, a little bit of that craft, people, uh, you know, and also if you you show off. So I was always intellectually showing off a bit, using big words and and using talking about logic and you know, and and because the lyrics. So if um, my early show, one of my early sort of contentious religious songs, Ten Foot Cock and a Few Hundred Virgins, that that sounds, you know, and I would announce that this is a song about anal sex and God, and I would go into it's basically about homophobia but it's got lines like so if you cover the bodies of your women everybody is grinning because black is so slim and though it's not great for swimming um but it gives me an erection with the increased sexual tension and the uv protection is second to none and so you're saying slightly contentious things that's not a great example of why it's contentious but but um in a way that's rhythmically and rhymically clever so people go oh he's being a bigot but he's smart so maybe it's not bigotry right um, and I, I don't believe it is, but there were things I said that I thought I could get away with. I was, I come from a very, very white, culturally isolated area of the world, town I love, all the wonderful people I care about, smart people there, but, but I, knew, I, I thought I could get away with stuff I couldn't, which is in the documentary, yeah, and I don't sure. talk about it too much because it becomes a thing again, but, um, but I stopped. Uh, well, you heard me talk about it in the documentary. Like, I, I was very, very keen to not get that wrong, to not be a bully and not be, um, you know. And, and but by the time I started taping things happily, um, I had learned that lesson already. So there's not much stuff that I watch back that I go fuck. And, and I learned fast, and I'm proud of my choices in that regard. So I don't, I don't mind all that. I, I no, I, I, I think he's good. I think the guy on the 
I think old me is good. I thought I was fine. You know, it's not everyone's. I don't think I'm hugely funny comedian, but I, I don't care about that. I was never trying to be. I was never trying to be an American club comedian. I was trying to do a show that blows people's fucking brains, and makes them laugh and think and not know where to bloody look. You know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go. <laughs> Fuck! Look at all this stuff. Listen to these words, and you know, and it di- and definitely did it. Like it was. It was something different, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, I'm kind of, I, d- I feel like a very sort of normal chap, and I think I made something a bit abnormal, so that's nice. It must be really satisfying to be able to look at the, the work you were doing as separate to you. I think yeah. in my own stand-up practice, because I'm right, just you're being still going. me. Yeah. Right, um, right. It's much harder to separate it. I've, no, I've discovered that with the podcast. I can be much more, I believe this podcast is a really objectively good thing. And I can say that to people in a way that I find it very eggy to talk about myself as a stand-up, as an objectively, hey, I'm really, I'm really totally funny. Totally understand that, yeah. And it's do- very, very hard to, you can't find joy in the, your jokes. It's very hard to find joy you can't find in your mind. own jokes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I find it hard to find joy in your jokes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is very hard to you, your art is not yours to judge and uh, unfortunately you, you are the least good judge of your own work um, this was the point I was trying to make to Bill Burr yeah yeah right yeah well Bill's I don't know if he's the best listener in the world I don't I don't think he came on your podcast to learn um yeah, but but you're not. You shouldn't. And it's very the funny thing about your own work is you you have a right to loathe it yourself. But if other people do, you're fucking furious. Um, especially with my theatre stuff, but with my stand up as well. I, I I'm allowed to see it for what it is, but they're not allowed to. Like, um, but you you shouldn't be your own judge. And it's 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 one of the most important lessons that you learn as an artist or a person putting anything in the world that that is personal and whether whatever whether you're selling a recipe or um even whenever you're creating something and offering it to society as a whole it it, it connects to what you were saying earlier about zeitgeist and just doing your thing and hoping you intercept basically is how i interpret that You, you do your thing you you make an offer you make an authentic offer based on what you think's cool as an artist and you either intercept with an audience or you don't and it's easier to be a confident person and go on with your life if you do but if you don't it doesn't mean your art was wrong or that doesn't mean anything except no one wanted it which is brutal but you 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 have to get to a point where you realize your art is an offer you can't or at least that's the only stuff i'm interested in you can you can make the fucking pixels movie or you know that someone's making an emoji movie now you know like it's literally like a bit out of a fucking sitcom yeah hey what could we make a movie out of emojis kids like emojis let's fucking exploit emojis for money like like i can't i can't it's fucking insane but it's real it's a real thing in the world someone's like emojis let's make a movie um make a million dollars and then we can sell emojis it's just fucking, <laughs> it's like out of control so that's all bullshit, you know. What you what you got to do is say, "Here, I've worked really hard on this thing I made," you know, and then you have to fucking step away and not 
listen, it's really, really the hardest thing. I'm not there yet, but that's got to be what you do. So when you, I was reading about the, the circumstances which led up to you writing the, the lyrics and the music for Roald Dahl's Matilda, for this, this musical made by the RSC. So Matthew Watchers sees your uh, operatic show with a full orchestra. And no, he saw, um, it, was the, it was before that. Oh, was it? It was okay. 2008, he was ready for this. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, that slightly knackers my segue then, but okay. I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll okay. do the question anyway, which is just that after you did, because that's when I gigged with you at the, at the 100 Club yeah, in London, 2008 or something, you were warming up for that tour with, uh, with a full symphony orchestra. Mm-hmm. And the show is incredible. And the show, and, and it's incredibly you as well. The idea that you have taken on this challenge of, I'm going to make the biggest possible musical version of what I do. And then you open it with a song about how comedy doesn't work in arenas. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? In, in an, you know, yeah. in an enormous. Yeah, comedy. I'm proud of that. Yeah, man, yeah. you should be. Yeah. The, the first thing I sang was, nothing ruins comedy like arenas. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> And you, and you go on to, I mean, it's really, if you haven't seen it, you've got to find it. You can find it on YouTube or, or but can you, I don't know if you can yeah, buy it, find it somewhere. Just, um, just find it. And, uh, find it and then buy something else that you yeah, can buy. Right. <laughs> and donate to charity. But the, if you, if you hear the rest of the song about, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's wonderful. But the, the, uh, the, the idea of that song, the premise of that song being, this is all about me, it's not about you, it's all about my ego, yeah. from this position of power, it's and fantastic. Selling DVDs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, could it have got, like, the next big project you did after yeah. that was Matilda, I think, yeah. I'm right yeah. to say. If you hadn't have gone on to do Matilda, could it have got any bigger? I don't think could I... Could you have scaled it up any, any further? Well, I w- I w- I'll be back on tour sometime in the next two years. That's my plan. And no, I won't. I think someone said, do you want to do arenas? We think you could sell arenas. And I went, only if I'm allowed to spend all the money on the show, <laughs> um, which annoyed everyone. So I kind of peaked. And oh, all the when, ticket money uh, yeah, from the money meant to cash sales. in. And okay. I, I earned very little because I was carrying <laughs> 70 people on buses around with me. But um, um, I'll do arenas at zero profit. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Deal? <laughs> um, no, I wanted, to, I wanted to make, I wanted to go, well, what, how do you justify an arena? Uh, and I did. I wanted to make the biggest musical comedy thing ever. And I didn't really think I would succeed, but looking back, I kind of did. Like, it, 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 it was. It was stupid, right? I mean, it was proper stupid. And this fucking orchestra, especially, I did it in Australia too with different orchestras, but in England, it was just brilliant. They are so brilliant. Um, some of those guys are in, were in my pit in London recently. They're amazing musicians. Um, and such an honor. And they, they're all amazing musers. And I'm like, this guy and conductors doing this and talking bars. And I'm like, you'll have to just tell me what lyric you want me to start on. Cause I have no idea <laughs> what you're talking And I didn't, obviously, it goes without saying, I didn't orchestrate these things. All these people orchestrated them for me. Um, but it, uh, but I don't think I ever thought I would keep going with that. I thought, and then I'll go back to theatres. Because post that, I did a lot of festivals. So I've got, I did a big band thing at Somerset House, like a 12 piece. And then I did loads of festivals with my, with my five piece, with, with drummer and bass. And they were just like gigs. It was so much fun because I didn't really talk. I just improvised. I did, um, outside at Sydney Opera House recently where I just talked and played songs with no script whatsoever. And it was really fucking scary, but really, really cool. And I sort of, so, so the, the orchestra just blew everything out so I could do 
I thought I can do any version of this, any number of musicians. And, um, and I did that for a couple of years while Matilda and while I was doing that and trying to act. I mean, then it was really about my acting career in that period, which, uh, that's also been lost to me, but, um, uh, but I want to get back to maybe solo or maybe with the band or maybe a bit of half of both. But, um, uh, I, I desperately want to get back to doing, I mean, thousand seats is the perfect room. A thousand seats is perfect. When you've got a lot of people who want to see you, they, your promoters will be like, dude, you can't do a thousand seats. You've got to, you know, at least do a couple of thousand, you know, so that there's all that bullshit economic pressure and pressure from people who want to make money out of you and want to want you to make money and, and but somewhere you... in there's a perfect size of theater okay this i'm just wondering how comfortable the robot inside is with having people who want to make money out of you like does that is the robot happy with that because that's an affirmation i love that i come to a podcast on a sunday and suddenly i've got a robot in me it's amazing <laughs> So out of some I did, I did, I did, I did, I did. Um, super, um, it's like the robot guy is like just a sensible, you know, I, I'm a very sensible sort of hardworking guy. That's the, I think everyone really knows that, but the hair and the thing. And it was, I think people who don't know me assume I take drugs and fuck around and stuff. But I'm like, I'm married to my Sarah who dropped me at the end of third year I'm, we ended up getting married and I've got kids and I I work hard drink a bit too much but you know I work hard and um, that 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 kind of person the rational person who's building a career and stuff uh, I'm, I, I'm totally I don't I'm very happy with the notion of having a brand and you know some comedians you know your Kitsons and your brands <laughs> your Russell brands you, they wouldn't dare talk about their brand but it doesn't mean they don't have one and it doesn't mean that pretending you don't have a brand and a thing that is a quantifiable commodity is doesn't just because you don't like to talk in those terms doesn't mean it's not true it doesn't mean that your decisions are not being made with that in mind you can just you can pretend all you like that you're a free floating entity of artness but it's a fucking it's a fucking job and you owe people you know you owe your audiences to be on stage on time and give give them something that fucking worth their 65 quid you know like you or 25 quid <laughs> i'm doing talking in musical theater terms like not or 25 quid or whatever you know you fucking owe them it's 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 a massive privilege and i really feel strongly about that and not only do i owe my audience the best thing i can possibly do but i owe my front of house sound guy respect and i need to know their names and like it like people get all fucking they forget very very quickly that they're just bog lucky to be the one up there earning the money you know like. just to just to look at that in the context of someone like tony law who you mentioned before yeah. or the other the other name that occurs to me is phil k yeah. Um, who some of you will know if you've been to uh, the Edinburgh Festival. I'm sure he's, he's travelled to Australia and, and I don't know if he's, he's been People to People for whom commodifying their work is a struggle, you mean? Yes, yes. And, and you, I know you're a big fan of Tony Law, you said. But um, the, they, I don't know the extent to which, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think there are some comics who maybe feel like that sense of obligation towards an audience, towards a paying crowd, oh, yeah. is actually a trap because what you should be doing is shaking that off and taking risks and being prepared to fail. But that's a different way of saying the same thing, maybe, in that I totally agree you shouldn't be second-guessing what your audience wants. And this is a conversation I have 
fucking every week at the moment with the people at the head of DreamWorks saying, well, you know, we think the audience will think this. And I'm like, you don't know. You've had as many for failures as successes. You, Have you, you said that? Have yeah, you absolutely. Said that? Yeah. I say, I say to them, I'm sorry. I know you think you're my boss, but you're not. Um, because I, I don't have bosses. You asked me to come to your studio and help you make something different, and I'm trying to do that. And I'm very happy to talk about the ways in which our storytelling is failing, but if you talk to me about what the audience... Like, you, you just are not as psychic as you think. You can't be reactive and all that. So I, I actually don't think giving your audience their money's worth is about feeding them what they think they want at all. No. And I think Tony, Tony's actually... He's a... a Dear friend, I don't see him enough anymore, but he, he has a deep pragmatic bones. He just wishes he could. The trouble with Tony is his style of comedy is so avant-garde and wonderfully joyous. But uh, apart from, you know, the troubles he's had with, with drinking too much or whatever he's been doing, which his show's kind of about now, he really wants to just be able to have a fucking, you know, proper, consistent, I'm, I'm sure, again, I'm putting words into his mouth, but it's funny, you know, um, sometimes what you do well is just not easy to roll out and not easy to find an audience for. That's always going to come back and not easy to share on YouTube. and not. It's just, I, I'm lucky. I, I have never made a decision in my life to do something because I think it'll make more money ever. It just happens that when you put all my weird skills and things into a blender and chuck it up there, people are like, oh, you'll have a fucking sip of that. That'd be awesome. You know, like, like, and obviously I'm not Louis C.K. and I'm, you know, and I'm not Phil K. I'm some, someone in between who makes some shit that some people like. Um, and it's the same with the musicals, which are deeply commercial things once they go to Broadway and stuff. I, uh, no point. Even after Matilda, no point in the writing of Groundhog Day, despite Sony executives going, the audience will want this. I've never, ever done anything to try and second-guess some market that someone perceives as there or not. You know? So in, with Matilda, when it came to finding what you wanted to find or finding what you found in the material, in the original Roald Dahl story, yeah. and, I, and I know you didn't, you didn't write the, the script. I don't know much about musicals, the term, the book. Yeah, is, the that, book is that yeah. the script? Is that what people no, say? So that, Dennis Kelly, yeah. Um, but, so talk to me about how you found the meaning that you found in the source material that comes through in the songs. Do you really want to talk about that? I feel like, you know, you said to me backstage, don't worry if you're boring the audience because this is not really meant to be a fun comedy show. It's meant to be a documentary. I don't like it to be known that I say that, but I say that to all my guests. <laughs> no, no, he didn't say don't worry about boring the audience. He's like, don't worry that you're not doing lots of gags and stuff because the audience know that this is a podcast about the craft. Not about, it's not about making loads of jokes. Yeah. And I totally get that. But um, I feel like I've been particularly boring. And do you, do you really want to hear about how I write musicals? I'm worried that that's just, you're asking me that. <laughs> you're asking, I mean, you're asking I, me that because that's what I do now. But um, we haven't really talked a huge amount about comedy. But um, Well, I, I, I mean, I want to talk about everything. We've got limited yeah. time. Okay. Um, I, I really enjoyed Matilda. I watched an illegal cam copy of it on the oh, plane really? on the way over. Oh, wow. With some Chinese blokes head bobbing around. Oh, wow. Of it. it was translated Christ. into a language I didn't even know what, Where what did script you find it was. That? I found it on the electric internet. Amazing. Yes. Um, <laughs> on but the deep but web. I did purchase the original soundtrack. 
Uh, so I have uh, contributed. Mm. I'm not just a thief. But my point, I saw amazing. the thing. I didn't and it know was, that existed. And it was great. You know, I mean, it's, even with some dude's head bobbing yeah. around, you can see the shape of it. I, and I could get, because I, I bought the soundtrack album, and because uh, uh, I, I like Roald Dahl. I hadn't yeah. seen the show when it was out. And from the album alone, you can't really make out the plot because no. there's sort of, you know, yeah, obviously, key stuff yeah. isn't, isn't yeah. there. So, yeah, I do want to talk about that. I'm very happy to keep talking about comedy, but I don't want yeah. to pin you down to stuff that you haven't no, done for I, five or ten years. No. Um, the, the musicals, are, as I said, they're sort of awful things. Um, they're, 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 I get a huge kick out of the... Who, the puzzle of who sings what when, which is, I talk about this phrase all the time, who sings what when, because I think a lot of people think writing a musical is about writing a series of really good songs, when actually I think it's probably 60% making good decisions about who sings what when. Like, and I love that. And that I've got this awesome photo that I'll show you afterwards. Um, when we were in New York getting Matilda up, I started writing Groundhog Day with Danny Rubin, who wrote the film originally. And we've, we, this is, I, I was doing Jesus Christ Superstar. So suddenly, uh, after like sort of loving musicals and then deciding there's no future in them and doing comedy, I suddenly was in a place where I was doing Jesus Christ Superstar and putting up Matilda and writing Groundhog Day, sort of in this triangulation of musical theatre hell. But um, to, as a sort of <laughs> to enhance my experience of being embedded in the in the dodgy world of musical theatre, I was staying in Andrew Lloyd Webber's apartment in. <laughs> On Columbus Circle, 50 floors up the fucking Trump Tower, right? This is, this is before Donald became... Uh, yeah, I was going to say, surely, you, surely you'd have uh, burst into flames yeah. as soon as you walked in. No, it's before he became a planetary risk. He was just, <laughs> he was just, a, he was just a fucking children's party clown, um, as opposed to a children's party clown who is now a planetary risk. But I, he, anyway, I was staying in you know, ceiling to floor, plate glass window overlooking Central Park and all the sticky notes, the beats, are on this glass window. Um, and it's really, really, um, it's, uh, I've got this photo of me and Danny just going like this <laughs> because it's hard. But, you know, um, yellow represents story and pink is a song, um, blue is a chorus number. And, you know, it's like the the puzzle of it, the Sudoku of it, you know, well, this is 100% this, what I wanted to hear, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I, I think people probably know from my work and you probably know from talking to me that I'm um, basically uh, a bit of a nerd and, um, and I love the... Um, and, and I, I, you know, I've talked about this in speeches I've done and stuff about science and art and how the, the, the idea that you have to not think scientifically and critically if you want to be an artist, that there's a correlation between art and a sort of um, intellectual relativistic attitude to the world, that to be an artist you have to sort of not lock your thinking in, I think is bullshit. I think the greatest artists are scientists as well. And I think I get a huge kick out of the puzzle of musicals and and it's why my comedy shows are like they are they're like fuck so we go boosh and then something small and then it's then ah oh, look i can play piano and then um then fourth stage and then you know, it's, I'm, it's not a science as in it's not i'm not assuming there's a perfect way to do something or copying a template of something i just mean it, it's fun to think 
through the Sudoku of it, how it will, how the audience might be feeling at that time, and and what you should do to to I, I think shake that up. I think that's an enormous part of the delight I got from watching the show is the same as I would get from like reading Terry Pratchett, who yeah. I love, where you go, Me oh, too. what's this about? Oh, what's it really about? Yeah. Oh, you clever fucker! Yeah. This has been hidden. <laughs> do you know what I mean? This has been yeah, hidden right. all the way here, and I knew all along what it was about, and now I get it. Yeah. So right. with with Matilda, for example, it's part of the reason it seems such a good fit for you is that when you start to realize, oh, actually, because I wasn't that familiar with the Roald Dahl story, yeah, yeah. Um, when you start to realize that, oh, this is about a girl being told not to read, yeah. you know, finding that in the source material, and find, yeah. okay, what does that mean in a wider context about, oh, that's an incredibly Tim Minchin-esque thing about how annoying it is when people prize stupidity. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the issue of our time. I mean, it really, really is the issue of our time. Is. <laughs> Yes, let's hear it for stupidity. Um, and it, it's not stupidity, it's a, reje a rejection of the notion of expertise is the most, I think, the most profound sort of cultural or socio-political or something issue of our time. And, and how much of that did you find in the Roald Dahl? Well, it was already, I mean, Roald Dahl railed against anti-intellectualism all along and it, he got accused, perhaps rightly, of snobbery and whatever. Um, and that's the, that's the great difficulty of this great problem. It's amazing how scared, scary it is talking these days. Yes. It's quite interesting. Yes. Um, Shakespeare, I, I, I quoted uh, vaguely Hamlet earlier. I talked about unpacking my heart with words. Uh, he says, and I, like a whore, unpack my heart with words. And I love, it's, it's weird. You, it's, the word whore is incredibly derogatory. And yeah, it's my, one of my favorite quotes. I don't know what to do with that. Um, anyway, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's very hard. It, it is all connected, even the misuse of the word whore or prostitute or, you know, the, the, our, it's, um, it's hard now. We're, we have suddenly come into a culture in the Western world where we are hyper, hyper aware of privilege and the way yes. in which our language and uh, the way in which we express ourselves can um, trigger people or make people feel othered or, you know, and, we've, and our world is crammed full of terminology, which is a net positive, I'm sure. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're not allowed to say, if you've read less books than that guy, your opinion's less worthy than that guy. Because that... And by guy, I mean the, gener the gender neutral sense of guy. Yeah. It's the speed of the discourse as yes. well. Is, is that's, now, right. that's right. You know, you, yeah. Yeah. you, you move so fast. I mean, guy, I, I say guys, and I, I, I hear that a lot of people don't like as females being called guys. The thing is, you might decide to transition into a guy soon, so I'm not judging your gender at all. <laughs> Gender's a fluid notion. Um, uh, but anyway, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time because... There is, they are two sides of the same coin, the rise of um, awareness of privilege and the way in which our language can uh, help or hurt people, and um, the rise of the belief that everyone's opinions are uh, equally as valid. They're, they're, they're both post-internet, um, post-curated information side effects, and uh, it could fucking destroy us, you know. Um, because it's really good that the masses have a voice, that we are the disempowered have a voice because of the internet. It's a huge problem if the disempowered, if they're not as educated on certain issues as others, and I include myself in the ill-educated, not in the educated, when it comes to things like whether or not England should, uh, Great Britain should yeah. leave Europe. I don't have the education for that. 
and I don't think my opinion on whether Britain should leave Europe is valid at all. I'm completely not the person to ask. Yeah. You should ask experts in fucking European politics and history and, and economics. And you ask them, and they all said, don't. And we all went, well, fucking wanna. And yeah. it's like, it's a if, fucking nightmare. It's a proper nightmare. And if, if we vote in Trump, it'll be the second major, major world event born of a post-expert respecting society. I, I, I really believe that. I, I think, am I, I being I, fucking paranoid? I, I mean, absolutely agree with you. I'm slightly steering clear of it because I have listened to the Herring interview and I don't want to retread ground because I know we share listeners. Right, okay, Traitors. yeah, fuck you. <laughs> anyway, why did we get onto it? Uh, we got onto it because I was asking about how you found the source material in oh, Matilda, yeah. how much of that came through because it was something you were it discovering in the story yeah. and how much of it was you having a particular drum to beat about something yeah. and maybe that informed the what you found in the story i don't know if i knew i wasn't conscious of a drum to beat i think i think accidentally every, everything you your whatever drum you beat um slips in whether you like it or not matilda's a story about self-educating and and um sort of righteous defiance against despots you know um and so there's a there's no doubt that my humanist worldview is absolutely um, riddled. The, the piece is riddled with that worldview, but it, I, th I think it was quite Dalian, and I got brought up on Dal, so it's like whatever. I don't know what the what came first, my sure. shared sort of. But it was a very happy accident, and and my new musical is is absolutely is a is a humanist text about about being good today despite the fact that you won't get any reward that was i was going to try and ask you about that without having seen the musical yeah Dog Day. So, yeah, yeah well it's it's exactly i mean you know a lot of people interpret groundhog day as a buddhist text um which is fine i don't mind and i don't want people to come to the musical with any preconceptions but i do think um my take on it is is available in the musical more than it was in the film because the musical digs much deeper into all the themes. The musical's much darker, much more um, on the nose, emotional. It has to be. There's no point writing a musical if you're not going to go a bit harder at the ideas and a bit harder at the emotion and discard the... It's not, it can't be a rom-com. Um, I mean, the movie's a work of genius, but it's not... You know, the, the musical goes goes further in and one of the things it goes further into is sort of if you look at it from a height you realize i think groundhog day for me has always been about the fact that he he decides that he should be good despite the fact that he has no expectation of waking up tomorrow and getting compliments from the people he helped that day because they reset and it's an incredible thing to decide that you're just going to do good without hope of any reward whatsoever but that's what the humanist worldview as opposed to a religious heaven-based worldview is you're, you're not going to get punished when you die you're not going to get rewarded when you die you're only here for a brief time might as well be a day in terms of geological time scale so just fucking do good stuff like without anything else and that's that and so i i love that the two musicals i've written have, have had available these great ideas i don't think there's a point writing a musical if you're not going to talk about the ideas shine a spotlight on the ideas a bit and um uh it's really fun going through and working out how you're going to make those ideas shine 
without being like, this is a song about death and stuff. <laughs> How do you feel about death? <laughs> oh, ooh, well, um, fine, fine. Yeah, I mean, it's a pity. Um, there's a lyric, there's a song called Night Will Come in, in Groundhog Day. That's the saddest moment in the show. And I won't give you a spoiler of who sings it, but it's someone who knows on two levels that, that it, there's inevitability to the going down of the sun. And, and the Groundhog Day, our, our musical talks about, has a lot of text that, because his life is a day and because it is really about living a life in a day of course the morning is a birth and the evening is a death and it, that's why the Buddhist interpretation is so um, it, it does feel like reincarnation and trying to do better and better obviously but um, there's a lyric that goes um, on and on we grasp and guess and search for patterns in the mess of what has been and what is left to yet endure the jester shrugs and plays his part. The fearful see only dark. The pious with their hope-filled hearts sing hallelujah. And, and, it's, and I think that's how I see it, really. You've got people who fear it because they think, fuck, um, you know, do not go gently. It's like your death is going to come and it's going to suck and you should fear it. And one should. And the religious or, or spiritual people will look for a construct that allows them to think it's not final. And our job, the jesters, is to go, ah, fucking smile. You know, the jester shrugging and playing his part is like, ah, well, I guess it's terrible and it's the end, but my job is to make sure you're laughing, you know. So that's my philosophy on that. It's quite handy when you've written pretentious lyrics about everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, hold on, let me... <laughs> Let me quote myself here. <laughs> it's a horrible thing to do to quote yourself, but it is weird because I spend so much time trying to make these problems into things that rhyme that it's hard not to go, oh, I got that one into a rhyme. Shall I just do it? <laughs> I've got a haiku for that fucker. Are yeah. you happy? Yeah, yeah. Always have been. Yeah. I mean, not every day. I'm hungover right now, but um, uh, look, I, I am a happy person i find it, lots and lots of you know um i there's lots and lots of challenges you know i don't see my kids enough and i travel too much and i'm often jet lagged and i you know saturday night i was in london sobbing so i was and i was very happily sobbing actually because it was the end of something beautiful which is a nice reason to sob and uh i was also overtired and uh, drunk again but um <laughs> uh yeah i i I've always been all right, good. Yeah, I, don't, I, I value very, very much my mental health, and people who follow my career have heard me talk about that a bit as well. But you know, like I, I don't take it for granted at all. Never have. Not sure why. Slightly mental grandmother that side, addict that side of the family. Just a sense and a sense in myself that it could get a bit up and downy, especially with this career. I mean, fuck. You know, when you've been on stage in front of a lot of people, you know what that's like. You're just like. Stay up here, let's stay up here. Tony Law does a wonderful bit about a trampoline. Let's just quote Tony Law. It's better. I, I, um, I value it very much so. Um, I've never taken any drugs and um, illicit drugs, and um, I don't think there's any real reason. I just have this sense that I shouldn't fuck with the what, mercury bubble of my balance, whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, if I don't exercise, I get sad. Um, 
So I feel like I'm I'm a very happy person, but I don't think it's I don't think it's impossible that I wouldn't be if I made bad choices. Um, you? Yeah, these days a lot more so. Yeah, I, I think I when I watch the coming back to the documentary just to round up. Um, one of the things I really, and I thought about this probably more than I should have, was something you said, I go running every morning. And I'm like, fuck, I should run it. And I watched the, doc, the, the address you gave to the, you know, yeah, to your old yeah. I mean, I, yeah. You've got to exercise, you've got to exercise. My self-discipline for exercise is terrible. Yeah. And uh, I don't do it. And every morning I've been waking up recently since seeing that and going, I've got to, I've got to run. I want it's to be hard, alive yeah. for as long as possible because I've got a baby and I know it's going to make me happier if I exercise. But it's, you know, there's a person in my life I'm very close to who is sort of long-term moderately depressed who it has that classic thing of going, what should I do? Oh, you should run a lot. Well, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I, and yeah. I feel a lot of that in myself, and I, uh, I, and I am happier than I've ever been. Yeah, well, you get a baby. It's pretty good. I said to you backstage, it's, I, I believe deeply that life is meaningless, but, um, but having a baby is a, a fucking good avatar for meaning. You know, like, it, it doesn't... It doesn't. <laughs> It's not real. I mean, whether that baby fucking on the planet or not means nothing to anyone. Um, whether you and your whole family blow up tomorrow means nothing to anyone either. But, um, but you know, it, it might as well be. Might as well. That's it's as good a version of doing something that feels profound as anything. But um, uh, <laughs> I think that's. I'm glad your shitty baby makes you happy, bro. <laughs> <laughs> fucking environmental. I think, I think, I know we must finish, but I think that's the way, an avatar for meaning, isn't that the way a lot of people feel about religion? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. It's just a fraudulent one. But, um, <laughs> but if you're happy to live in a, in a lie, that's fine. But, um, um, the no, same look, lie no, that you're living in, I know. about the happiness that you yeah, the no, avatar no, of your own that's children. Right. Yeah, no, no, religion's fine, and I, I... I think probably it's a net bad on the planet, but I don't think it's only bad. I think, and I think it's, you can't possibly look at 80% of the world's population in the eye with all their suffering and troubles and, and say, oh, you shouldn't believe in God. It's like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Like, even in the, the many, many places in this country, without the church, they would, the, the, the center of their community, the structure, the spirituality, whatever that means to them, and you you can't just tell people that they're dumb for believing in God. I just just, but that in turn doesn't mean there's not a conversation to be had about the role religion plays. In it. They should obviously pay tax, and they shouldn't be allowed to have a voice in the legal process, and they should shut up about the gays, and they can all fuck off, and they shouldn't be allowed to. They shouldn't be allowed to make their own laws about whether or not they investigate priests if it with kids and all that. So that's all fine. But but I'm not going to go around stomping and saying you shouldn't believe in God, you idiot. You know. Um. Anyway. Um. The um. Uh. The running. I just want to say about the running thing because I'm. I, I do go on about it. And looking at me now, I'm clearly not doing a lot. But um. Uh. The there's a lot of bullshit around exercise and depression. It, with people who have depression, it doesn't work to just go running, and I wouldn't want anyone to sure, think... And I the trouble is, you. as well, when you say things like, you should exercise, someone who's struggling with depression, they're not going to be able to fucking go jogging. That's one of the many things you will struggle with. And then you've got the guilt of also going, oh, it's my own fault, I'm depressed, I'm not running. Like So you you have to be careful with that advice. I, I, I think doing something to get your blood pumping is really, really good, but I wouldn't want people to think I'm like, if you're depressed, it's your own fault because you haven't jogged. You know, it's, it's fucking bullshit. We're cutting everything from the interview apart from that last one. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Tim Minchin.
Thank you. Thank you. So that was Tim. I enjoyed the hell out of that. And I mean, that's the longest live one we've done. We had a, an hour and a half to play with him. We used it slightly more than that. Um, so a huge, huge thanks to Tim. Thank you to you uh, for listening. Do please share it with your friends. Thanks in advance for that. Um, thank you to everyone from LA Podfest who made it possible. First, uh, thanks to uh, Beck and Katie who helped me set up the interview. Much appreciated. Uh, and everyone at LA Podfest, of course, uh, Graham Elwood. He pronounces it Graham, but that's because he's American. It's Graham. So Graham Elwood and Chris Mancini, uh, and also, of course, Dave Anthony, who you remember from uh, a show I had on this uh, podcast last year. Very, very funny guys. And uh, you can check out their podcasts, uh, The Dollop, uh, which is with the very funny Dave Anthony and the very funny Gareth Reynolds, who was just, he's probably the funniest person I saw at PodFest this year. So great. Uh, so check out The Dollop, which is a ludicrous historical thing. Uh, and Graham Elwood and Chris Mancini do the Comedy Film Nerds podcast, which is absolutely well worth a listen. And thanks to Tabitha Bohannon. I think I'm saying that right. I mean, that's a pretty sweetly American name, isn't it? Uh, thanks to Tabitha for her hard work setting up the festival. Uh, also, hello to Steel Saunders. You should check out Steel Wars if you are some kind of uber-nerdy Star Wars fan. Um, you'll enjoy that enormously. I know I do. That's everyone I need to thank. I've mentioned Herring's show before. I've mentioned Jimmy Pardo's Never Not Funny and Jackie Cation's The Dork Forest. Do check those out as well if you're on a, a podcasting jag. And um, that's all, I think. If you'd like to hang around, I'll have a little uh, chat to you in the, the waffle in a minute. But for now, that concludes the podcast. So, here's where I am. <laughs> you know, every so often these are recorded in odd little places. Um, I am about to go on at a corporate gig. Woo! Um, it's uh, an awards ceremony, and I'm wearing half my penguin suit. I've taken my T-shirt off uh, in order to have the meal that, uh, <laughs> that uh, they very kindly provided for me. I have insisted, as is my custom, uh, that I will not be dining with them. This is Whenever you do an awards ceremony, I've done... I, weirdly, I have done quite a few of these now. Um, I, uh, they often ask you if you'd like to dine with them, and it's very kind of them, but I don't know any of them. I don't want to hang out and have dinner with a bunch of strangers, particularly not when I've got the sort of growing feeling in my gut that I shouldn't be eating. I, should, I should, certainly shouldn't be sitting down. I should be pacing back and forth exactly as I'm doing now, um, and not even recording uh, anything for you guys, but I just should be pacing, pacing around and, and kind of working myself up into a sort of... Well, an arguably very negative uh, pre-show frenzy. I got back from L.A. I had the best time. Hey, shall I talk about this? Give me, give me your thoughts on this. Um, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn. I'll try and uh, obfuscate some of the names. Probably people will tell me I mentioned it last time, and I've already given you all the details. During Edinburgh, uh, someone came to see my show who is a booker for an American TV show. And it's the sort of American TV show that has little uh, five-minute spots, has acts doing five-minute guest spots. And it's the sort of thing I would absolutely love to be on. But the nature of the uh, visa requirements is such that the company that makes the TV show will give me the slot and they'll help organise the visa for me. They'll legitimise the visa. But... Um, they, uh, they won't pay for it, and you've got to pay something like three and a half grand. Now, that is putting a very, that's putting a real price, I mean, that is literally putting a price on how much you want to do a gig. I'm sure the gig pays something, but it doesn't bloody pay three and a half grand plus, I don't even know if they, they fly you over or what have you. It strikes me as it would only be worth being on the show 
if I was, if I was going to make a concerted sort of six-month launch at America, if I was going to go, right, I'm going to go to LA for, a, for a, a few months at least, and I'm going to do it strategically, and I'm going to use that to bounce off and try and book some gigs. And, um, and that would be, I mean, that would be great fun, but I'm not 25 anymore. I've got a baby, and, uh, and I would need to uproot the family. I couldn't go away for months. I wouldn't want to. It'd be awful without them. So I'd need to take the family to America. And then that is a little bit less like, um, you know, that, there's a sort of big effect on people's lives. I mean, it might be really good fun. It might not be really good fun for them if I'm sort of out trying to lig. And is ligging a word? You know, we're like, you know, whatever, schmoozing and networking. Ligging, no? I, th- I think I'm misusing it. I think ligging is hanging around with roadies and trying to get free stuff. Well, maybe not. Anyway, the point is... If I were 25, I'd jump on this, absolutely. But I'm a little, I'm an older guy, and uh, I've got, got some sweet responsibilities that uh, need taken care of. And um, so if I, am, if I were to do that, would that, be a, would that be a good use of my time? Is it worth, I mean, it'd sort of be worth doing it for fun. I suppose, what, let, let's look at the wider issue here, because this, you know, <laughs> you're not in charge of my career. I'm not, it seems, so you're certainly not. But... I think the wider issue is the light, my life as a comedian, I've said this to loads of people recently, so it must be true. The, the job I've got is the absolute dream job of 20-year-old Stu. 16-year-old Stu would just dissolve. Well, he wouldn't. He'd be all cross that we weren't a famous movie star, but he's an idiot. But 20-year-old Stu, who slightly had his head screwed on, this is the... Dr- I'm so lucky and happy, and it's brilliant, but it's all based on what I wanted as a teenager, as, a, as, a, as an adolescent. And uh, I'm not saying I'm unhappy with it at all. God, I love my job. It's great. But you see what I mean? The same sorts of rules don't necessarily apply anymore. And as soon as I started to think, right, if I do job X, if I do that American thing, it's only worth doing as part of a thing, and that's only worth doing as part of a larger plan. And what is that larger plan, and what do I want? And then it ended up with me (laughs) ringing my missus at like 8 in the morning UK time and going, I mean, should we move? Should we move to LA? Should we... You know, and she sort of said, well, yeah, maybe. It's very, very uh, amenable, very accommodating and things like this. So I don't think she even said why. I think I said, yes, but why? Um, so it's just, it's just weird, isn't it, how life moves on and you start thinking, I mean, God, it's such an exciting idea. And it, God, who knows if it would even be possible. I tell you what, I think that's what, um, that's what appeals to me is the idea of fresh challenges and fresh landscapes with, within which to d- discover and explore. And, um, and it's almost like it doesn't matter whether it would work. It doesn't, it's not about whether something ultimately is a success. It's about kind of continually scaring yourself and biting off more than you can chew. I'm sure I remember Eddie Izzard saying in an interview years and years and years ago, he said, I've always tried to go towards things that scare me. Not everything, you know, not jumping off a cliff onto a spike. Have I said that on the podcast before? That made a real impact on me. And after that, my, my kind of uh, decision-making process basically became, oh, is this frightening? I'll do that then. That's a huge part of what's kind of spurred me into stand up and going to Covent Garden as a, as a busker and what have you um, so I, I suppose there's a bit of that in my tummy still of just like go on this, this is terrifying it might not work it might be disaster go on do that then um, but that's that's what I'm thinking about at the moment I don't know I'm 
you know, you tell me on the Facebook group what you think I should do. I can't, I'm, I'm getting better at reducing my email intake and outtake. So if you want to talk to me about that, I'll put a post on the Facebook group and you can, uh, you can weigh in on that if, if you're interested. Thanks to those of you who've been in touch. And I, I, every time someone emails me and puts PS, I'm a cool guy at the bottom of the email, w- which, as you'll remember, is the code by which that means I can give you a one word reply and you know that it's cool that I've read your, your email and I'm not, you know, I'm not just kind of brushing you off. Every time I see one of them, I'm like, dude, thanks so much. <laughs> I really appreciate it. So, so that's that. That's, that's what's going on in my life. Came back from the States, having had a wonderful time and um, some interesting, sort of exciting, potential future infrastructure things for the podcast and for, for other bits and bobs. Sort of uh, uh, kind of fun. Hello, Charlie, if you're listening. Hope you are. Um, thanks for everything. I should have thanked you in the main bit earlier on, but, you know, if, if you're who I think you are, you're probably listening to this bit. Thanks, man. Um, and, um, yeah... Uh, thanks very much thanks very much lots of love what am I doing I'm not dictating a letter thanks very much podcast listeners lots of love I'll speak to you soon bye bye tour dates coming out remember on the 21st of October look out for that announcement speak soon hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.